right. We'll do prayer requests at the end tonight. We'll try to get through 52. I like to get to, to chapter 53 and spend a little time on it. 53 is going to talk about the cross. And so we're in 52. We're talking about Jerusalem and the exalted servant still as we go. We left off in verse 4 uh, of 52 last week. We're going to pick up there. I said, uh, getting close. A lot of these chapters in the last couple of chapters, I think most of them are, are just 15 to 20 verses long. Uh, very few of them are longer than that. There's a couple that's 22, but very short chapters from here to 66. Uh, so we're getting close to being through with Isaiah. But in verse 4, it starts off, we're basically, the Lord's going to vindicate his name before those who blaspheme his name. And we're going to see that in verses 4 through 6. So it says, For thus saith the Lord God, my people went down aforetime into Egypt to sojourn there. And the Assyrians oppressed them without cause. Now therefore, what have I here, saith the Lord, that my people is taken away for naught? They that rule over them make them howl, saith the Lord, and my name continuously every day is blasphemed. Therefore my people shall know my name, therefore they shall know it in the day that I am. He does speak. Behold, it is I. So as he, he starts off here, we look at verse 4, and it's a reminder of the, the oppression that the children of Israel had been through up until Isaiah's time. And if you look, okay, he starts off, he, he's talking about uh, when they went down to Egypt. You know, you think they didn't go down to Egypt to become slaves, did they? They, they went basically at the invite of the Pharaoh because who was second in charge at the time? Joseph. So, you know, they went for a reason. And we see the reason why the main thing is there was a, there was a famine in the land. And, and God took them down there. And, and a lot of people say, well, why did they go into slavery? Well, you think about that family dynamic that went down. As if you, you read the story of Joseph and his life and his brothers, how many of the, the family were really righteous? Yeah, and that's pretty much it. You know, we don't know a lot about Benjamin. Uh, we know he, you know, he had the same mother, and you know, he was treated by the father about the same. The brothers kind of took a little more care of him because we know they they did feel guilty about what they did. Now that doesn't make it any better. How many of you've ever done something wrong and feel guilty about it, and you still don't do nothing to change? And that's kind of the way we see. So I think God took them down there. And over a period of time, the nation started to grow. But that same characteristic that we saw in, the chill, in his brothers was still there. And they continued to have that same characteristic as over time. So I believe that one of the reasons God took them down there is to make them a nation and to make them stronger mm -hmm. as a people. Because he knew what they were going to go through. You think as they went through it, think about what God did in, in Egypt. He taught them how to build. He taught them how to work. When they came out, he knew that they were not going to accept everything he said. And so they were a very hard people. They, they were able to cross this desert and, and because of the kind of people they were. They came out a, a, out of a, a, a place, and they were they had to form an army. They had to do all these things. So God had a reason why He did it. Why did the Syrians and the Babylonians come? Well, you know, sir, God allowed it to because of the idolatry they had. So it's like everybody that's ever oppressed Israel, there was a reason behind it. And so He's reminding them of them. He says, "You." You know, we look back, he said, you sold yourself for naught. In verse 3, he says, for thus the Lord my people went down aforetime into Egypt, sojourned there, and the Syrians oppressed them. And then God says, you know, it's kind of without cause or what a, a true reason other than that he allowed it. And he had a reason behind it. And so it's just a reminder they were oppressed. Now, in verse 5, he starts off, he says, now, therefore, what have I here? 
So in Babylon, referring to the captive of the Jews there, the idea is that the, the state of things there, which demanded that uh, his, 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 I guess you could say, his getting into it and looking, uh, they were, you know, they were being carried into captivity and, and the things that were being oppressed. So God had a reason. He says, I, I, I'm watching, I'm looking. You think about when he talked with Moses as bringing them up out of Egypt, he said, I heard their cry. How long did God hear their cry? You know, how long did they cry out? When the children of Israel went into captivity, the, the, last time here and in Isaiah's time and the times after that, it's a reminder that God hears them and he, he says, you know, I, I'm listening. You know, uh, you were taken into captivity. My people are taken away for, for nothing. We're, weren't taken away for nothing. He had a reason behind it. He says, they that rule over them, make them howl, saith the Lord. My name continuously every day is blasphemy. So one of the things that God said, he says, my people are taken away for not. There was a reason why. And he says, but those that he used have gone too far. Is what he said when he says, they make my people howl. He intended for them to be, you know, trouble. But it, it's like, okay, God, he, he raised up the Babylonians. He raised up the Chaldeans. He raised up all these people. To, to get on to, to Israel, but it's like they got carried away. You know, and so he said, you know, they make my people howl. But then he says something else about them. And what's that last little bit he's talking about? Blaspheme they blaspheme his name. And he's not talking about the children of Israel. He's talking about those who were, God, basically you say God put over his people. So he was mad at them because of the blasphemy. Blasphemy. And you think about in Egypt, you, you think about something. If you look at when God brought the children of Israel down, and like we said, he did it with Joseph. Joseph was the number two man. What was the one thing Joseph continuously talked to the Pharaoh about? He talked to him about God. God's the one who let me interpret the stream. God's the one who gave me the wisdom. God's the one who did this. But did the Egyptians listen to Joseph? Did they listen to the children of Israel about their one God? They made fun of them. All right, when they get carried into captivity in Babylon, think about this. Uh, there was a man, we have a whole book with his name on it, Daniel. While Daniel was in captivity, what became of Daniel? Yeah, he got elevated. He and, and he showed them God. The Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they saw, but yet they still blasphemed God's name. You know, that the miracles were there. The thing he says, and they and every not just a little bit, but every day they continued to blaspheme. So as he's saying this, he said, Therefore my people shall know my name. And therefore they shall know it in the day that I am, that he does speak. Behold, it is I. So, so basically, he, he, God's almost saying in a way like this. He said, I can handle the blasphemy in a way, because I, I know those are heathens. But what about his children? Notice how he ends this little section here. He says, but my children basically are going to know my name. So what does that tell you about a lot of the children of Israel? They were ignoring God. If you remember, the whole first half of Isaiah is about basically how they ignored God and listened to everybody around them. He covered thy idolatry within the children of Israel, and so he's basically he said he said I can handle a lot of things. The, I, I, they you know I took my children down there. I had them sit down there. It wasn't for nothing. There was a reason behind it. These guys made them a howl, but. My kids don't even know my name. He says, and one day they're going to. It's bad enough, you know, the, the world doesn't honor him, but it's worse when his children don't honor him. That's like in the day, the day that we live in now. We see that a lot of people are getting away from teaching Scripture and talking about repentance, talking about the blood of Christ. 
you know, the, uh, there, there are places that says, oh, we don't teach kids. Christian schools will say, we don't teach kids about the blood of Christ because that's just, you know, that's too violent. Well, Christ died for our sins. His blood was shed for the remission of sin. And if we're not teaching that, what are we teaching? Yeah, we're teaching false doctrine. And, and so it's the same thing. So it's more, what's more tragic? A world who doesn't really know God, blaspheming them, or a group of Christians ignoring them? And so that's kind of what he's talking about here. He says that's how it is. And, and, and so you, you think, you know, he says, that, therefore they shall know that in that day it is that I am who speaks. So you think about one of the things different in today than in Isaiah's day, they didn't have the word of God. How does God speak to us mostly? It's through his word. That's how he, he, he get you. Know, there are those, you know, uh, God will talk to you in dreams. He'll talk to you. You'll hear voices. You, you know, the Holy Spirit will direct you. But most of the time when he talks to us, it's through his word. They didn't have that. So they, they didn't. But there was a, Isaiah says here, and God says here, there's going to be a day that they know who I am. There's no doubt. And as I read this verse, and I got to thinking about that there'll be a day that they know, there's going to be a day that the whole world knows who he is. There'll be no denying it. You know, in the great white throne judgment, there's going to be no way people can say, I don't know who that is on the throne. I don't know why I'm here. You know, as, as John sh shares with us as what he sees, there and that these people stand before God and, and the way he describes it the the world's melted away and basically you're standing before God naked and the reason why he puts it like that is you have nothing to hide behind you have no excuses then and we know that that judgment is those who've not accepted them so all these people here in the Old Testament, all these people who through time have blasphemed God's name and, and, and says that he doesn't exist and all this, there'll be a day they can't hide behind these made-up lies that they've come up with. And, you know, uh, I always think back to, I've, I've shared this with you before, it was the, the, the secretary that, was for, that uh, President Nixon had. He, he said that it always used to amaze him that people that had an appointment to see him, they had like a, a, a room that they would sit in before they had their audience with the president. And he says, and I would be in there waiting to take them and introduce them to the president. He said, and there were so many of them saying, when I get in there, I'm going to tell him what I think. When I get in there, I'm going to give him a piece of my mind. And he said, 99% of them, when they got in there, just in the awe of being in the, the, the Oval Office, standing before the President of the United States, would be just as humble as they could be and as polite and nice as they could be. He said that office was what got them. It was the thing that made them just be in awe. And so you think about this. Now that's Nixon. So can you imagine what it will be like for somebody who says God don't exist and boom, there he is. So they'll know who he is. There'll be no denying it. And it's just as here he says, my people will know it. And in that day, that day is talking about the day that, that of, of God, that day that they'll stand before him. Now, in verses 7 through 10, the whole earth is going to see that the Lord's the one who redeemed Zion. Listen to what he says. He says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publish peace, that bringeth good tidings of good, and that publish salvation, saith unto Zion, Thy God reigneth. Thy watchmen shall lift up the voice with the voice together. They shall sing, and they shall shall see eye to eye when the Lord shall bring again Zion. Break forth in joy and sing together, ye waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord hath comforted his people. He hath redeemed Jerusalem. 
The Lord hath made bare his holy arm in the eyes of the nation, and all the ends of the earth shall see salvation of our God. So as he starts here, he starts off, he says, how beautiful upon the the, the mountains are the feet of him who brings the, the, who basically who brings forth the the good news, uh, you know, brings forth the good tidings. So basically those that are sharing the gospel, those that are telling people about God, how beautiful they are. Uh, and, and the messenger is bringing this, this much wished for news to the, the Babylonian captivity. Could you imagine if you was in captivity and God says this and he, he sends this message, how beautiful the mountains are the feet of him that bring forth good tidings. You've been in captivity and God said there's going to be something better. And so it's a promise to that. Barnes said this, he said, how beautiful the watchmen discover far off on the mountains. The messengers bring the expected much wished for news, the deliverance from Babylonian captivity. They immediately spread the joyful tidings of Isaiah 52, 8 with a loud voice proclaim, proclaim <coughs> that Jehovah is returning to Zion to resume his residence on his holy mountain, for which sometime he seemed to have deserted. This is the literal sense of the place as he says this. Barnes says with his people, could you imagine though, Isaiah wrote this before captivity. And the one thing that they had was while they were in captivity was, was where the synagogues came from. When they got there, they, they, they couldn't go worship at the temple. But they'd been allowed to carry things with them. So they carried the words, the scrolls with them. One of the scrolls they carried was Isaiah's. And they read this and you come forth to this promise that God says there's coming a day that God's going to redeem Zion or Jerusalem, the mountain. He's going to come. He says, how beautiful it is when somebody comes and shares this with you. When we hear good news, isn't it great? How many of you have had doctors give you good news or somebody give you good news and it just, just lifts you up? And so this was a promise. And so they had that promise of good news. And, and so you think, I want, I want to share a verse out of Nahum. Chapter 1, verse 15. It says this, it says, Behold upon the mountains the feet of him that bringeth forth good tidings, that publish peace. O Judah, keep thy solemn feast, perform thy vows, for the wicked shall no more pass through thee. He is utterly cut off. So again, we have a promise when they God said, you're going to come back and you won't have to worry about problems. Has that been fulfilled yet? They came back, but was it fulfilled then? You know, if you, if you read uh, Nehemiah, you read Ezra, and you read when they rebuilt the temple, then they rebuilt the city walls. How did they rebuild the city walls? Yeah, because you know they they had to build them to defend themselves. So when they came back, it wasn't as peaceful as Isaiah promised. So, but there, and, and even today, it's still not peaceful. I uh, I was watching this this uh I love documentaries, and so I was watching the documentary. It was it was on Jerusalem the other night, and it starts off and it shows a picture of the holy city from a distance, and it says one of the Oldest cities around, but the most contested place on earth. You know, everybody wants it. And when when you're looking at it and you see this old, I can put it this way, but run down city that's still halfway in ruins, and you think everybody wants that. And they'll fight for it. And they'll kill for it. And God said, there's coming a day that you won't have to worry about problems. You won't have to worry about these things. And it's a promise that he's made. He says that when it, when it happens, people are going to break forth in singing. How many of you, when you get happy, sing? If nobody's around. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, how many of y'all have ever been in the car just singing along with the radio and then you realize the, rate, the windows are rolled down? You're singing at the top of your voice and everybody in the car beside you is going. Yeah, 
bless that cat's heart. You know, but when we when we're when we ha- we're happy, we sing, we're joyful. And it says here they're going to break forth into joy, sing together. Then he he tells how bad he says in the waste places of Jerusalem. So even in the worst places and the in the most horrible looking things, it won't matter because of why. Christ will be there. And, you know, when we read in the book of Revelation and what goes on in the city of Jerusalem, we know that it, during the tribulation period, there's earthquakes and earthquakes, and finally there towards the end, basically a third of the city is destroyed. But it says there's going to be joyful singing here. And why? Because Christ will be there. And so they'll be happy. They'll, it says they're going to break forth. And he says, why? He says he has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. See, the only redemption Jerusalem will have is when the Messiah rules and reigns there. From Isaiah's time and in the time they go into captivity, they don't have a king. Even when they came back out of captivity, they didn't have a king. So they had nothing to really redeem them. They rebuilt the temple. They went into basically into slavery to, to Rome. They were under Roman rule. And and they still, even though today Israel is a nation, if you listen to the politics of Israel, they're almost as messed up as ours. Not quite, but close. And so they they still don't have the rule and the promises that God said I'm going to give them, that, that he's going to redeem Jerusalem. He said, the Lord has made bare his holy arm in the eyes of the nation. So there, when, whenever you, you see the word arm in the Old Testament or in the Bible, a lot of times, it, it, it's a picture of strength. So it says, basically, you said, the Lord has made bare his holy strength in the eyes of the nation. So the, the people will see the strength of, of Israel, and the strength of Jerusalem one, one day. And the only way that can happen is because God will be there. And, and re, remember that, 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 that saying they're talking about the, the arm the, 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 as people watch because when we get over into the suffering Savior, you'll see that, that, that expression again. You know, God don't make his strength known all the time, does he? If you think about it, as Christians, we're some of the strongest people in the world. But does people look upon us as a strength? Or what, how does the world view us? As nuts, yeah, there you go. As weak. But the strengths and the weakness there, you know, the, his testimony is through the salvation he gives. And we'll, we'll cover that when we get over to the next chapter. Now, verses 11 through 12 is a call unto confidence for those who are going to return. And he says, depart ye, depart ye, go out from thence, touch no unclean thing. Go ye out in the midst of her, be ye clean, that bear the vessels of the Lord. For ye shall not go out with haste, nor go by flight. For the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your reward. So when he says, depart, depart, and get out, it's, prophetically, this has both the near and the distant application again it was it was intended for the babylonian captives you know uh isaiah prophesied to but but also for those that the lord's going to gather in the end times it's one of those that they they're called to separate from babylon because you think in the bible babylon and rome or when they're mentioned it's always mentioned as a sinful place isn't it you know, I think the only other the the only other place that kind of gives a little more sinful name that we'd think of is is Sodom and Gomorrah. But Babylon's always referred to, so he's talking to them when you come out when you depart. He's telling them to be clean. Don't if you look at it, he says, "Depart ye, go out from you think touch no unclean thing." As a Jew, that would be something they could understand. They had a lot of things and rituals they had to go through if they touched something unclean. If you remember, at Jesus' 
trial. Remember, the Jews would not enter into Pilate's area because they didn't want to be what? Now, think of it. They didn't want to be ceremonially unclean by crossing into this area. But what were they demanding? The death of someone. So were they clean or were they unclean? They were unclean because of their actions. And, and so he's telling them, don't touch none of them so that the, the Jews could understand touching things and, and, and not doing things. So he's saying this. Now, if he's telling us today to, to depart, get out of the world and touch no unclean thing, what does that mean? How do we do that today? Live a better life. We're called to be holy. We're called to be righteous. We can't be righteous in our own actions. We're righteous through the blood of Jesus Christ. The only way you can be righteous through the blood of Jesus Christ is if you apply it to your entire life. And so this verse means to them to come out and be different than where they are. They've been in Babylon. They've been involved in a, a, uh, an area, I'm trying to think, my mind just went blank of the word I wanted to use, an economic social place of uncleanness. You think about something. Uh, Mordecai. Did he like the Jews? He wanted to kill them. Jews were different because they, they a lot of the people in Babylon will look at them and say, well, they think they're better than us. That was a problem in the Old, Old Testament in general. A lot of the, the, the Gentiles around them thought that the Jews thought that they were better than them. What do we have today? Do people look at Christians and say, well, you think... You're better than me. No, I'm just forgiven. Amen. I want you to have the same thing that I got. But people say, oh, no, you're judging me. And so it's that same thing. You know, go, go ye in the midst of her, be ye clean that bear the vessels of the Lord. So he said, be clean. Because you think, where does the Holy Spirit live today? So if he lives in our heart, then we are the what? The vessels of the Lord. So we're supposed to be what? Clean. I mean, how many of you would like to drink out of a dirty cup? You know, nobody wants to eat off dirty dishes, drink out of a dirty cup. Isn't that amazing? We don't want to eat off dirty dishes, but we make them horribly looking by the time we get done with them. And, and so, but what do you do when you get through eating? You wash the dish. And so it's, we're supposed to keep ourselves clean. How do you cleanse yourself as a Christian? Through prayer, asking for forgiveness. You know, one is, is Daryl said, we got to live right. Got to live clean. Got to act right. So it's a reminder for us to do that. Now he says in, in verse 12, he says, for you shall not go out with haste nor by flight, for the Lord shall go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rewarder. In this verse, if you look at it, it's a good way of saying you can't do it on your own. So you don't go out with haste. How many of you have ever made that mistake? So don't go out with haste. He says, you know, rely on the Lord or, or just run off into it. Yeah, there you go. Read the instructions. That's a good one. Read the instructions for you. We got the rest of the instruction book. Now, in verses 13 through 15, we see the exalted servant today as we look at it. Let me get to my notes here. I've got like three billion of them here, and I'm not going to use them all. He says, behold, my servant. Now, it's funny, the passage here as it ends, he, he's focusing now on somebody else. He says, behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. As many were astonished at thee, his vicious was so marred, 
more than any man, his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle the many nations, the kings shall shut their mouths at him. For that which hath not been told them shall see, and they, excuse me, and that, and that which they had heard, not heard, shall they consider. Well, my reading is just not that good, but the you know, in other times in the in Isaiah, different places when he spoke of the servant, he speaks of Jesus. Sometimes he's speaking of Isaiah, but most of the time it's of of um, Jesus. The Ethiopian, y'all remember in Acts chapter 8 when the Ethiopian's in the chariot and he's reading and Philip comes running up alongside him and he he asks the question, he says in, in, in verse 34, he said, and the eunuch answered, Philip said, I pray thee, whom speakest this prophet, himself or some other man? He was reading verse 13. Now, it wasn't verse back then, but he was reading that. He says, who is the servant he's speaking of? Was Isaiah speaking of himself or was he speaking of somebody else? And so that opened the door for Philip to explain who the servant was. And so we, we know, you know, he, he wasn't speaking of himself. He says, behold, my servant shall be, shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. And, you know, uh, we know that Isaiah was never exalted or, or placed in a high place. He was a friend of the, the, the king at one time. But he, he, he's talking of somebody else here. Now, in some versions of the Bible, the word servant here is capitalized. Not in all of them, but in a, many of them are because mm -hmm. it knows who they were referring to. And if you ever notice in the Bible, when, when God's talking about God, God's capitalized. And if he's talking about the false gods, it's always lowercase. So that, that's one here. Uh, like I said, some... The King James Version does not do that here. But a lot of the other versions do because they, they wanted to highlight who it was. So he says that, my hold my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted. He shall be extolled. He shall be very high. Was Christ exalted when he was here? No, they ignored him. They ignored him. Now we know that, you know, up on the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John, Saul. We know that a lot. some people did lift him up, but as a general, he was ignored. So there's coming a day that he will be exalted. Now listen to what it says. As many were astonished at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man, his form more than the sons of men. So his visage, this speaks of basically, as we're starting to get into the, the suffering servant, chapter 53 is basically the, the chapter on the, the man of sorrows. We're starting to see it. So as he's talking about this, he's basically said the way he looked was so marred Amen. This is where we have the idea that the beating that Christ went through, the torture that Christ goes through, basically you could not distinguish who he was. And it was so bad that it's more than anybody else had gone through. And so it's, it just tells us, could you imagine how Christ looked by the time he got to the cross? Just through the things that he went through, up through there? You, you know, they, they, when he, they beat him, how they mocked him. Because remember, it tells us in, in Luke chapter 2, or 22, it talks about how they, they blindfolded him and they, they hit him in the face and they asked him to prophesy, you know, who struck you. I don't know about y'all. I don't think I would have wanted to be that person. Yeah. Yeah. I often wondered. Did any of those guards or any of those that did that ever get saved? Yeah. 
Yeah, you know, uh, there, there's always rumor uh, or legends, I guess you can say, like the one that run his spear up through his side that he, uh, I think the one of the, the legends said that he was blind and when the blood hit his eye, he, he became, and he became an evangelist. But again, we don't have proof of that. We don't have it written down. Uh, there are stories, you know, in acts of different people who came to know him. So it, it could have. I've often wondered, did any of those ever get saved? Could you imagine? Man, I struck him. I cursed him. Uh, going through life. Because look at Peter. When Peter denied him, and the words of the Lord came back to him, how he felt. You know, we know that, that Peter and Judas both basically sinned that night. Judas, it said, he, he repented to himself. Anybody got an idea what that meant? He felt bad for himself. You know, basically, he, he didn't repent. As it says, he basically, like you said, he made excuses or something. And then he went, he hung himself. Now, Peter, it says, wept bitterly and repented. And we know that he was restored. But I wonder how many times those dreams of, I rejected Christ. Because look at how he became. He became a totally different man. He was always brash. He was always bold. But then in the book of Acts, as we see him become Peter and the one who basically starts the church and is that bold speaker, doesn't care if they're going to throw me in jail, doesn't care about any of that. Look how he gets crucified. Don't crucify me right side up. And he gets crucified upside down. And that's even... A worse death because it's going to be quicker but he he he, he becomes somebody different so I, I've often wondered at what happened to the ones that did that because he, he says this he says so he shall sprinkle many nations now the reason that's in there in, in verse 15 it one of the things that they did during the the the, the sacrifices is they would dip the blood from the sacrifice on branches and sprinkle it on the altar to for the forgiveness of sins. Yeah, that's where they get the idea for that. And and so here the sprinkling of the nations is he and he'll sprinkle he'll he'll forgive the nations. But listen what he says: the kings shall shut their mouths at them at him. So it doesn't matter if the high ruling people or not when they come face to face with Christ, they can't say that they're going to sit there. You know, he he's the one who's the king, not us. It says that. Then he, I, I like how it, it, it ends in that verse. He says, For that which had not been told them shall see, and they which had not heard, they shall consider. He says, you know, the, the basically there'll be no excuse is what it is. You can't say I haven't heard, I haven't seen. Now, Bible tells us creation speaks for God itself. And, and so we know there's not going to be an excuse that they'll have. We're going to get into 53. Yay. I'm going to go ahead and just jump right on into it. I'm going to skip that part. I'll come back to that another day. I wanted to start 53 because it is talks about the man of sorrows. He's introduced it a little bit here as he talked about how he was beaten. And so I did one thing. I decided I looked up a description of the crucifixion of Christ and I started, I said, well, I'm going to read that. But then uh, I said, I might do that halfway through this. Because the chapter 53 is going to foretell the sufferings of Jesus. And what's so amazing is that the last couple of chapters of Isaiah were very important to the children of Israel. But it's like they miss this. Remember when in Jesus' day, what kind of Messiah were they looking for? So how do you think that they would justify verse 14 of chapter 52 when he's going to be disfigured? 
because he tells us here in the start of it, look how he starts this, 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 this chapter. He said, who hath believed our report and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Clark said this about this. He said, this chapter foretells the suffering of the Messiah, the end for which he was to die and the advantages of the resulting to the mankind from that illustrious event. This chapter contains a beautiful summary of the most particular and distinguished doctrines of Christianity. And you're going to see a lot of verses in here. And so he's asking, to starts off with, who's going to believe it? So Isaiah kind of anticipates two things. First, he anticipates how strange and contradictory the, it, it seems that the suffering Messiah, who you're not even going to be able to know, recognize anymore, and then he's going to anticipate the rejection of the Messiah. So he's going to introduce, he's going to talk about it, but he's also going to tell us that you're not going to believe it. Because he says here, who's going to believe our report? Who's going to believe that the Messiah, the promised one, is going to have this happen to him? So and the next part, he says, Who, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Remember what I said about when it says the arm. Who is the strength of the Lord going to be revealed? You've got a Messiah who's going to be beaten, a Messiah who's going to be put to death. What kind of strength is that? Now, it, it starts off telling us a little bit about, you know, uh, you think about it, he says, for look at verse 2. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness when we shall see him. There is no beauty that we should desire him. Now, we know that, that as, we don't know a lot about Jesus as he grows up, do we? We know about his birth. Thanks to Luke. We know about the, the, the everything that come before he was born. Thanks to Matthew and Luke. But then, what do we know about him as a kid? Nothing. We know that in, in Luke chapter 2, it says this. It says, And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Now, that ends his childhood. That's right after they go to the temple when he's about 12 and he stays behind and mom and dad had to come hunt for him. And all we know is that he got smarter and people started to notice him. But now, what does it say about him? Why did they notice him? He wasn't that good looking. Yeah, yeah, I'm off to one. Could you imagine being a friend of Jesus when he was a kid? You're probably the one that got in trouble. Jesus don't ever get in trouble. There was a tender plant, weak and vulnerable. And, and you think about it. Uh, he was. It, well, the, one of the first things we see about him after the birth is when Herod wants to kill him. So what does... What does uh, Joseph get warned to do? Yeah, to, to, to remove, because he's vulnerable. I think that's one of the reasons why we don't see a lot about him, because as a child, he was just a child. Yeah, he was a special child, but he was just a child. So he was, he was vulnerable to the thing. So he, he's weak and he's vulnerable. But then he says... Uh, you know, as a root out of dry ground. I like what this commentary says is, Jesus grew up in the Galilee region of Rome, occupied Palestine. In respect to spiritual, political, and standard of living matters, it was indeed a dry ground. He grew up in a time when Rome just basically taxed him to death. So did Her uh, Herod, excuse me. And so... Yeah, he didn't really have that great of a place to live, did he? So is that, that tender plant root in the dry ground? He didn't really have a lot. Spurgeon said this. He says, don't say unless it is useless to preach down there to send missionaries to that uncivilized country. How do you know it is very dry ground? Oh, well, as a hopeful soul. 
Christ is a root out of dry ground, and the more there is to discourage, the more you should encourage. Read it the other way, it is dark, then it is fair for a, a grand show of light, and the light will never seem so bright as when the night is very dark. So if you think about it, when we look, say, why should we tell somebody about Christ? Why should we go do this? Because you never know what comes out of it. And so that's the promise. Now it says, he has no form of comeliness. The word there is hadar, and it means splendor or, or honor, glory or beauty. So think about the description Isaiah gives us of Jesus. And you think about today, what draws people today to other people? Money and their looks and different things. And so he says, there wasn't nothing really fabulous to look at about Jesus. He wasn't that good looking. Yeah. Yeah. Gives me hope every time I look in the mirror when I read that verse. <laughs> you know, if, and you think about, now remember what God said. God, because of when, when uh, David was chosen king. Samuel's there and all the brothers come in. He sees the big brother and he's majestic. He looks like a king. God says, I don't know, not him. I don't judge by the outer appearance. I judge by the heart. And so with Jesus, we see that in fulfillment. Jesus wasn't, there wasn't nothing that when you just saw made you want to, to rush to him, but yet there was. So we, we see that he, now, now look at the next verse. So he says, there's nothing there to make us desire him. In verse two, he said, he is despised and rejected of men. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And we hid as if it were our faces from him and he was despised and yet we esteemed him not. So he is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows. And, you know, Jesus wasn't the life of the party, but yeah, it was funny. Everybody wanted him to come to theirs. And, you know, he, he showed great joy in his life. And Luke chapter 10, verse 24, 21 says, In that hour, Jesus rejoiced in spirit and says, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou hast hid these things from the wise and the prudent and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for it seemed so good in thy sight. So he he rejoiced. We see that the scripture tells us he did. He was, he was a happy guy. But yet it says here he was a man of sorrows. You know, he, he, he knew sorrow. He knew grief. And I think it was his attitude and how he handled things is why man rejected him. I heard a thing today that talked about how the difference in Christians versus the world and the one thing it is, is the hope that we have, the joy we have. What's the difference between joy and happiness? Does anybody know? You know, ha 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 joy is eternal. That's a good way to put it. Happiness, as Julie says, is dependent on the situation you're in. Now, you could be happy one moment. How many of y'all ever just been happy, jump, walking through the house, no shoes on, and then you catch your toe on something and it just bends all the way backward to your heel? Are you happy right after that? No, the happiness is gone. <laughs> but... But think about this, joy is, even as a child of God, if someone we love dies, we still have joy and hope because we know where they're at. Joy helps us through problems. Joy helps us when everything falls apart, we can still smile. That's why when you go to a Christian's funeral, people are in there smiling, they're having a good time. I've been to, to a couple of people who's lost in their funeral and it, it's depressing. There's no hope. They, like preacher, will you preach them in heaven? I can't preach somebody into heaven after they're dead. 
I always hope that somebody will tell me, yeah, I know that they got saved. I cling to that one little bit of hope. I did a funeral somebody, and they were told me, they said, I know that when he was a kid, he got saved and was baptized in church. Now, the rest of his life, he never showed. All I can say is I hope. I have that, that one profession of faith, but I can't say, yes, he did, because his fruit's not there. You know, we're known by our what? By our fruits. So we have joy, though, when a Christian dies because we know. How I many of you have been to a saint of God that's passed away and you're like, hey, I know where they're at. And everybody, you walk in, you feel a presence. Yeah, Aubrey's funeral. That was a good one. You know, yeah, there were tears shed, but we all know where he's at. And so that, as he said, he's a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. Remember when Lazarus died, the shortest verse in the Bible says what? Jesus wept. He wept because of the grief that was going on. Now he knew he was going to raise Lazarus, but still, that was his friend. His friend had to suffer for that. Yeah, that'd be a good reason. And you, you think about something too. Christ came and endured the cross knowing that there would be people who would still reject his work. There would be those who accept him but would in turn be like Peter and deny him. So yes, he is associated with grief, acquainted with it. He says, we hid as if it were our faces from him. You know, can you really hide your face from God? You know, uh, Peter tried, but it didn't quite work out for him. You, know, you think about the man of sorrows that he is, and he said people tried to hide their face and just, well, and, and he was despised. Now notice how Isaiah put this. He says, he says, and we hid our face, we hid as if it were our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Isaiah saying we were his people. And we went along with the world. We hid our faces. We didn't lift them up. Think about the last week. Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Hosanna. Hallelujah. Then a little bit later, crucify him. They rejected him. They, they despised him. I'm going to stop here and we'll start in verse 4 with the servant that bears our sins. And that's when we'll get into the crucifixion. As we talked, he was wounded for our... Verse we all know, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquity. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed.